I don't know about you, Jesse, but I just felt like like Vegas. It seems like everything's really close by, but actually everything's really, really far away. And the buildings are all huge, and so they look pretty close by. But I got lost. I mean, I've never walked so much in my life, actually. Oh, me either. Felt- well, and I was gonna say, like, I clearly realized over the weekend that it has to be intentional that casinos are designed so you can not figure out how to get out of them. Like, it totally it, is. Yeah, I've got a bit yeah, about that. I mean, I'd never really thought about it, but like, oh man, trying trying just to get out of the hotel for breakfast the first morning there, like me and two other people got so lost. It took us like 45 minutes to go to a place that turned out was like literally right next door. If we knew where the front door was, it would have been like a two-minute walk. It was absurd. Yeah, and I feel like they designed the convention center like that, too. Like, it was impossible to get out of the convention center. Oh, there were so many, like, really long hallways that came <laughs> to dead ends. And they looked exactly the same, too. <laughs> and like same, and they were so long, you couldn't tell it was a dead end until you <laughs> walked for, like, five minutes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I was imagining, like, this designer who, like, had basically just copied and pasted the same, like, five meters of the building over and over again. Because, it, like, you go one floor, two floors up, it's it looked exactly the same. So it was, uh, no, I think it was a, an architect that supremely hated all of humanity and wanted them to suffer. Um, <laughs> that's what it seemed like to me. Did either of you win big, though? Um, I did pretty well for myself at the tables. It paid for all of my expenses there. Really? Wow. You're not joking. Uh, no, no. I mean, <laughs> it didn't game? Like, pay for my plane ticket, but you know. Um, blackjack. Always blackjack. Wow. I, I won blackjack. some money the same weekend on, at the horse track in Berkeley, but doesn't right? really. That's pretty cool. I was amazed the things you could, like, because I would go in the rooms like that, like the, I don't even know, you call those rooms where you put lines on pretty much everything that ever happens. But uh, people were betting on preseason football games. <laughs> that's like, the that's saddest thing. A stupid thing. Like, that's worse than betting on the roulette wheel because you at least, like, there's some logic to the roulette wheel. But, like, there's – I mean, it's it's like guys who are never going to – I mean, you're essentially uh, – it's just so weird. It, it boggles the mind that you'd, like, even want to make a bet on such thing in the first place but then would given that there's so many absurdly minor variables that – uh, cause the outcome of that game. It would be kind of awesome, yeah, it, to see just hardcore gambling addicts just going nuts, only betting on fourth quarters of preseason games. Well, and it was it's just like I, you have no idea who the quarterback's going to be, who's still playing, who's going to just take a knee versus who's going to try. And, it's great, right? That's exactly what I'm saying. I, I think I actually saw a guy who must have been betting on that because he was freaking out about like a Denver, like Dallas, or something like. Uh, some other team that's not very good at all, like game in the third quarter of the preseason, and he was just freaking out with every play. And I remember walking by that guy and going, "Like, wow, I can't believe you care about the game." <laughs> but that may well explain why he cared about the game. See, you know, I one just... thing I was impressed. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. First one thing recording I... here. Go. One thing I was impressed by Vegas actually is the food is is actually pretty good, and um, you buffets. know, there's nothing. Well, not at buffets, but like even restaurants that yeah, look kind of cheesy. Restaurants, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's hard to eat local in Vegas unless you're eating, like, sand and small scorpions. I mean, there's not much. That <laughs> makes a nice kebab. I thought the food was really expensive, though. That's what I'd always heard. It, it, it is super expensive. It's okay. But um, it's good. But it's good. It's good. But I was, uh, I was watching – have you guys ever seen that show Modern Marvels? 
like on the Learning Channel? No. Nerd. Okay. Well, there's a show that's like engineering feats, and and one of them was uh, the buffet in Las Vegas, <laughs> and and it turns out that like when people eat at buffets, uh, they usually put a lot of stuff in their plates. Are you guys still there? Yeah. Yep. They um, they put a lot of stuff in their plates that they don't actually eat. And um, when they, you know, when buffets became really popular, they had this huge problem in Vegas of just an enormous amount of organic waste to deal with. And it was like a, like one of those challenges that humankind had to solve somehow. You know, they tried burying the organic waste and some problems happened. And um, they've designed these machines, I guess, that every hotel has that like – takes all this wasted half-eaten cake and, you know, crab legs and whatever and turns it into a sludge um, that they then feed um, surrounding pig farms that are all around outside of Vegas and the pigs eat this sludge and then um, the pigs are then slaughtered to then, like, become pork chops for the buffet as a little factoid uh, that I learned watching modern, modern Marvels today. Uh, the circle of life. I greatly disagree with feeding uh, uh, other animals to themselves. Like, <laughs> it's going to be – I mean that's – you know, it's, I believe I'm dumbing it down way too much. But essentially what caused a lot of mad cow problems was that you're feeding cows cows. And cows don't normally eat cows. I think pigs are different because I feel like I've heard many I mean, different pig, sources say that they've well, been the doing that is, with pigs since uh, forever. I and mean, there's so pigs, much other stuff that could go wrong with pork. Pigs That's will eat anything, but it like, right. doesn't mean they should eat anything. Mm. I'm just saying. And also, plus there's just the weird factor, dude. Like, don't force that pig to cannibalize. Like, <laughs> and this, maybe it takes a psychological toll on the pig. I don't know. I don't want my bacon to be upset when it gets to my plate. <laughs> you can taste that. You can taste that stress. Oh, you can, you can taste the bitterness. I've heard uh, it makes it crispier, though. Well, you know, if you like it that way. Um, man, I actually had something somewhat intelligent to add to that buffet thing, but then I got lost in my pig cannibalism. Lost in, <laughs> lost in bacon. You know, once somebody mentions bacon, my mind pretty much shuts down. <laughs> and it's not that surprising that the food is good there since it's such a tourist destination. And typically you can serve tourist crap, but because Vegas is, I mean, at least – the touristy part is so self-contained. Eventually, they had to actually compete with good food rather than just cheap prices. So, right, and it's it's also uh, though it's also very much like like being in an amusement park or something. The way like even normal things are way overpriced because they know a lot of people aren't ever leaving the strip. You know, <laughs> so, like being in a perennial airport concourse. Well, yeah, exactly. Because like I mean, I. You know, sometimes I like grab fast food because it's like the cheapest thing and I'm in a hurry. But even the fast food is like at least 50% more expensive than it's ever been at any other like exact same fast food place I've been. Uh, And so it's kind of funny. It's just like a much larger outdoor like monopoly situation. You know, I actually feel like prices have gotten much worse in Vegas. Like on those small things like that you're mentioning, like in my room there was this coffee maker that if you used it – they would charge you like an extra fifteen dollars for turning they charge on. Charge you for the coffee maker? Yeah, wow. just for and turning it, it on. Yeah, they can and, tell if you turn it on. Yeah, you know, like that cheap, you know, coffee that they have. And oh yeah, it's I noticed that like Starbucks was really expensive, and all these little yeah. tiny things. It seems like they try to make up the cost, and I wonder if like you know the whole economy behind Vegas is Jeez. kind of 
crumbling a little bit. You know, I, one of the big hotels there, the Sahara, closed down, uh, right. which was of the Strip. And, like, I mean, the economy. I mean, I think Vegas is the highest foreclosure rate in the country right now. Um, well, it's certainly like I mean, but there was a ton of speculation. Too. Yeah, and it was like one of the, it's like it might still be like one of the fastest growing, you know, uh, cities in the country. Like to to move there to live there. But you could definitely see how like during times of economic downturn, like paying money to fly somewhere, paying ridiculous amount to stay there, and then like gambling away large percentages of your money would probably be like less appealing to people. I could see how a recession yeah. would definitely hit Vegas first. Any hard. tourist economy is going to suffer, and Vegas is going to suffer the most. I mean, I don't know that for a fact, but it certainly sounds logical, right? Is someone vacuuming? Yeah, what's <laughs> going on there? That, I think, is my mic. I'm going to mute. I, I'm gonna Keep talking. Keep talking. Oh, yeah. There it goes. Oh, yeah. So you guys are coming in perfectly clear, actually. I don't even... Yeah, yeah. I think the sound is good, other than, you know, Papa's ruining our conversation. Jeez. Shut up, guys! <laughs> yeah, well, it's definitely him. We know that. <laughs> so, Jesse, yo, you're uh, you were complaining about how the transitioning from the being in the field to writing was a rather painful one. Uh, not was, currently is. Currently is. Yes, it's giving you some fits. Well, and it's kind of, this is kind of a new thing for me. I mean, uh, writing is, I mean, I'm not particularly good at it, but it's always been a somewhat easy thing. Like, writing kind of flows for me. But man, I mean, I think the thing is, it's like, a dissertation is obviously a very unique animal, but I bet this applies to, like, books or you know any other sort of long work but like it's just having to address so much like i'm not very good at at making like physical outlines and things i like to do it in my head but this is just way too much stuff to keep in your head you know and i'm always i think i'm most afraid that like i'm gonna forget a lot of the like really interesting insights like as i'm writing just because there's so much stuff you know it's daunting man yes I know. I think all four of us are in this various stages of the writing the dissertation. Yeah. So right. if uh, I, I hesitate to say I have advice because it's not like I'm done and have a particularly successful example of having done this. But I will say that the like, in my opinion, what always stifles me is the academic stuff. So getting all the citations right, making your argument and situating your claims within the literature just right, and explaining your methods just right. And the fact of the matter is that um, the data is what matters, right? I mean, it is. It's all those little things that you're afraid about forgetting and getting lost in the mountain of, you know, jargon and crap. That's what's important. So you got to focus on that, you know. You can add the other stuff later. I, I think also my fear yes. sometimes where I get stuck is like maybe after I, I, you know, draw it all out, all the different things that I have going on, that maybe there's nothing really interesting <laughs> after all. You know, like That's you're true. like thinking about the conclusion and thinking about what does this have to say to the literature and what does it speak to. And I know, you know, like with qualitative work, you have a driving question that you started with, but it changed probably yeah. right oh, and so 
you have this other question and then as you're working towards it, it's it's natural to be like, well, do I have anything to say about this other question that I think I'm interrogating? Right. And uh, I think that's, it's it's difficult. And um, one of the things – I also don't want to give advice, but one of the things that's been helpful for me is, is trying to write um, not – the dissertation, but writing out an extended outline where I write a plan. You know, this is this is where I think the dissertation is going to go. You know, and uh, here's what these two chapters will do. You know, like kind of ex- writing out right. my plan for those chapters. But see, I'm just starting that very process right now. That's it's frustrating because, like, that's always I think the hardest part. You know, like once you get that oh, decent enough structure, then it's just kind of like filling it in, and that has its own challenges. But like. See, does that work for you guys? See, that doesn't. I, I, if writing a dissertation were just a matter of writing an outline, I'd, I'd be on like my fifth PhD by now, right? Yeah. I mean, I've got like, and I've gone through so many outlines, and you can look back at every step in the process and say the important thing was getting the basic structure down, and then it turns out that the basic structure just continually changes. And you know what I like? What I've done, what's worked for me, finally, like the the sort of breakthrough for me was to not even treat it as one document <laughs> and just say, I'm just going to write a crap ton of memos, you know, mm. and here I, I, at some point and then, and then po- postpone the, the, the rearranging until later, you know, and just say, well, okay, this is a point I need to make. It's going to take a few pages. I will make that point in this few pages now and then do that for a bunch of stuff. And then eventually piece that together down the line. Cause you know, you agonize over like, getting the right organization and it, you know. Well, I'd say that's, I mean, that's essentially what I do by outlining, right? Like I just like, my outline is just like groups of things. Like I just say like, so people are talking about, you know, how they feel about America and I just group all of those together and then that's like a thing in the outline and then I just do that and then I just do it, yeah, chunk, so I essentially do it like that, I guess, memos because every time I get to that chunk, then I just like go back and reread all the things I said about America and then be like, okay, this is kind of what's going on and yeah, that sort of thing. But it's just collecting all that up, right? Like I'm so afraid the like the coolest thing or the thing that would really like hook people or really interest people or you know, that kind of thing that I'll like miss that in the giant mountain of data and then kind of like Arturo saying like, will I even have anything interesting to say? Yeah, I mean, because that's what happens sometimes when I write an outline, too. I just like, well, I thought this section was going to be, like, like substantively interesting, but there's nothing to say to it, you know. And when you actually write it out, you're like, well, it turns out this other part of the story is interesting. And, um, yeah, I mean, it sounds like, you know, it should be painful in a way. That's what I hear. Like, I've asked a lot of people who've written books and, like, hey, you know, like I had this guy on my podcast who, who just wrote this great book. And I was like, you know, how did you not – how did you um dude don't say things i'm gonna have to edit out that was conspiratorial sounding shit all right 33 minutes in okay gotta make note of that sorry sorry take a pause Um, the question is do i edit it out or just beep it out and make people wonder who you're talking about beep it out beep it out beep it out out. yeah you gotta beep it out um but um so this guy this other guy um I asked you know like what's your what's your process like and he's like dude honestly you know this book was like 2 years at a bar being completely miserable and he told me you know like sometimes he would have dreams about this and he would wake up and start writing and then the next day he'd come back to it and it's like wow that was total gibberish you know it makes no sense <laughs> with the rest of the book and he kind of said he just wrote memos memos and tried to like piece it together kind of as you're describing John but at some point, I think you have to like, you know, you put out different 
frameworks like okay i have five things that i want to say do they make sense you know or do i just focus on two of those things and yeah yeah that's painful that's totally the 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 the, i guess my point was that you don't get too hung up on that stuff on the front end because you're going to reevaluate on the end anyway and the important stuff is to get the actual original source material that you're going to be providing that's the important stuff so like um for what i did and i and i finally got to this stage pretty recently in the last few months is I went through and did sort of take an outline. And really all I did is just sort of, you know, went chapter by chapter and wrote sort of short one paragraph summaries of what that chapter was going to be about. Um, and then started bringing all the stuff into one document and that helped. But if I, you know, it also looked way different probably than it would have if I'd done it two years sure. ago or a year and a half ago, you know, um, I would say what, what I think is, is extra hard for me is that, like, so the methods section, I think, is usually supposed to be the easiest one because that's just, like, writing dryly what you did. But to me, I, like, I, that's the hardest stuff to write for me because, like, and maybe this is too insider baseball, but I think we're kidding ourselves if we're thinking many non-sociologists are listening to this. <laughs> um, but, like, the thing that gets me is, I mean, like, qualitative methods, I mean, I'm not discounting that there are definitely like better ways to do it than not and that you could teach people, blah, blah, blah. But essentially, it's really just kind of like, yeah, hung out and talked to people and uh, yeah. watch what they did, and you know? Then, yeah. and, but like you have to – and, you know, I mean obviously it's more rigorous than that. But like, man, I, it just sometimes it kills me like how uh, how many references you have to make. And I get why that stuff is important for like advanced quantitative models that like many people have gone through and, you know – evaluated and checked in on these sorts of things, these debates, blah, blah, blah. But like when it's, I mean, interviews are just kind of like, they're interviews, man. You know, they're asking people questions and hearing their answers. You know, it's like not a ton you can write about that. But I feel like you're yeah, supposed to yeah. pretty it up. Yeah, and that's exactly what you do. So what you do is you go back and you get all the books that you have from your methods classes and you find the chapters about interviewing and the the jargon and terms that people use to describe the framework that you're approached the interview questions with you talk about how you wrote the questions you talk about the you know it, i think yeah essentially it's a lot of yeah i mean i just hate doing that like essentially it's just one of those like one of those life charades you know where we all have to pretend you know and everybody does it that way you know i mean like nobody rigorously like plans or things according to the literature for like how they're going to interview before they do interviews you know they just have their style i think some and people like, do they're just freaks. yeah i think some well, people do well but. i was going to say you know one <laughs> of the things i did a few months ago is like i actually went and bought some new qualitative research methods books and um i it's funny because i find myself like i think you should write the methods section like last but you should like do a like a practice run of it now and you know, if you pick up a qualitative book and you kind of read about, like, not like a qualitative, like, uh, epistemological position about why qualitative methods is good, but like an actual, right. butts in, you know, like, a, um, you how know, to. yeah, how to. Like, I actually took some of those how to techniques and used them. And then sometimes they became too rigid and they didn't quite work. And then I tried other ones. But I have to say, like, I, I learned a lot actually trying to figure out what is it, what, how does one analyze qualitative data? And there are some approaches right. out and, there. And that's, uh, I mean, like, that's what I'm trying to say. Like, I'm not saying that stuff isn't useful. Like, it's super useful to hear, like, what works for other people and, like, you know, some, from, like, even a theoretical standpoint, why it might be better to do things like this. But, like, that stuff is, 
I mean, it never works for like a different, like everybody has their own style of interviewing, right? Like it's yeah. such a personalized thing, you know, that it's like, I mean, it just feels so disingenuous to write about it any other way than saying like, this is how I talk to people, you know? And like, it's, I mean, I'm sure it bears some resemblance to some sort of like rigorous, you know, I mean, it's just, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's not coming out well. And I feel like it's making me sound terrible for somebody who wants to get no. a job in this field someday. But essentially like, it feels kind of disingenuous, I think. Again, like I said, it feels like, just one of those sort of theater things where we all have to yeah, there's you know, defi- hit the right cues. There's definitely an element of that. I mean, it's not not to say that there isn't a craft of interviewing. And exactly, a, but that's the it's but it's, it's yeah. why do you know? I mean, like essentially, why do there is a, definitely a craft interviewing? It's definitely something you have to work at and you know do a lot of things to get better. But like, why do I have to talk about that in terms of like these citations? You know, essentially, I mean, because it's like. Again, I mean, it's kind of like qualitative research itself, right? There's not really like a – I mean, every one is going to be different. It's interesting. I um, When I was analyzing data, there was a time when I was kind of going through kind of like the grounded theory approach. And I don't know how familiar you guys are with this stuff, but it's like yeah. – it, You know, like in San Francisco <laughs> and like medical sociologists who do applied work, like grounded theory is kind of a – a big thing and and then I started reading critiques of grounded theory and it was interesting because grounded theory in a way is is an approach is a purely inductive approach where one of the things that they kind of say is like don't read the literature like you need to go and just read what whatever your data is saying without taking into consideration what you should be seeing like there's that very you know inducing from the data itself approach um, but then it gives you a very methodical approach to what the steps that you need to go through. And the critiques of grounded theory have said, listen, what's the point of telling people not to read the literature if then you give them a very rigid um, technique of analyzing the data? And this like issue of like rigidity versus like a more fluid way of interpretation, I think is like inherent is an inherent tension that like qualitative researchers almost feel like they need to systemize an approach, mm-hmm. but once they do, it becomes too rigid. And I think you have to, I think, try out maybe different techniques. And I mean, I'm going to be honest, like I learned after the fact, you know, like, oh, I've taken my methods courses and I, I, I'm a qualitative researcher, but then I ran into these books and I was like, wow, people actually do have a <laughs> rigorous method to it, you know? And so I would say, you know, check out some different approaches, see if something resonates for a while and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Um, but like, I feel like my method section, I'm going to write it at the end, um, just to be as honest as possible. You know, like I, I wrote like, oh, I'm doing a little bit of institutional ethnography, but all of that feels more like I'm just going back and citing things that I feel like I should be citing. Whereas I actually do think some of this, this stuff has, um, usefulness, uh, not as just a position. Sure. Like you know, the grounded theory thing I think is 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 been very useful for me. Gra- so. Grounded theory is one of those comments that at least I'm imag- I'm remembering sort of uh, the sort of graduate methods seminar where you talk about that, and every everyone loves it when they first hear it. Mm-hmm. They're like yes, that's total. That's totally awesome. You can do that. You can say, oh, I'm just doing grounded theory. <laughs> you can do that. That's awesome. That way you just say, oh, well, you know. I'm just going to go out and, and only pay attention to the data around me. Um, yeah. It's such yeah. an appealing idea. 
Oh, it is an appealing idea. But, and I see it actually all in evaluation research and kind of more applied settings. Yeah. Everybody cites and what they mean, theory. And what they mean is we just didn't want to bother ahead we of don't time. have a theory yeah <laughs> no. yeah it can for some people but but i mean i i mean i say that as someone who's fairly into i mean i'm not any grounded theory in the sense of i don't really like get into that debate and all that literature but i mean i do like i do strongly believe that as a qualitative researcher you more or less have to let the data tell you what the story is you know what i mean it's very hard to you know what i mean yeah and you know and people who have critiqued grounded theory and even in our department have said Oh, you know, you can never, you know, stop all your biases from looking at the data. It's not a pure right, of description. But grounded theorists don't believe that necessarily. And I think, you know, what you're saying is like letting the data speak for itself um, right. is the way to go. Yeah, what's Sorry, going on with Chris? Can I ask really quick, is everyone hearing that snapping? That like every few seconds? Yeah, like I, a... I hear it too. I don't, okay. I don't know who's doing it. I wondered if that was like Papa's testing his mic or like... Uh, it might have been my pen. I'm sorry. I'm like, uh, is it, is it, it the sound very right rhythmic? I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I like to uh, talk in a pace. Keep my, It's like a metronome. It <laughs> keeps the metronome going. Yeah. <laughs> That's how Arturo keeps all of his I, sentences. I, on the I must write this many words per minute. <laughs> I, I've also found that writing is difficult now for me. Like, and it's, and I've been exploring all these different um, like warm up exercises, and I even bought this book, How to Write a Sentence. Like, <sighs> like I feel like I'm getting worse as a writer as I fo- fixate on this stuff. And I um I met this writer at a coffee shop a few weeks back, and he was just saying like, dude, if I had to write a dissertation, like that's just so much pressure that you have to speak to all these like you know nuanced points about the literatures that it just would freeze me up as a writer. Uh, well, so I think that's also difficult. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I think part of the thing about a dissertation is like you, you're constrained in a ton of ways. I mean, a big obvious one is that, you know, you have to be speaking about your data, you know, and these kind of things. And so it's like, I mean, sort of more other like creative writing. I mean, that also obviously has its own problems, but like far, far fewer restraints, I think, makes it easier to at least like just get going and kind of like doesn't make it necessarily easier to make great yeah. work or something, but Definitely feel like it's easier to kind of start. But see, like you blog, don't you, Jesse? Like you do that pretty regularly, don't you? I do. I do. Does that help with like the dissertation writing or no? Um, that's a good question. I've never really thought about the, the twain in context. Um, I mean, it it detracts from dissertation writing, and <laughs> I tend to. I do find sometimes when I have like a lot of writing to do, my blog posts get a lot longer, just because like it's something that I can sit at my computer and feel like kind of like I accomplished something. Um, but I guess, you know, in the sense that it does keep me writing quite a bit, it probably helps. Yeah, I think, you know, that kind of gets back to uh, the, the point I was trying to, like, hammer in on earlier is that the stuff that we find really difficult to write um, isn't necessarily the most important stuff, you know? Mm. Um, right. Like, uh, I mean, really, like, uh, you're you're writing. You've got to put the dissertation, especially in a dissertation. You've got to put your dissertation in context. Um, there, it is true that people sometimes write dissertations that then get published as books. Um, it's usually after massive revision, though. Like, the dissertation right. itself is basically going to be read by like four or five people. Right. And the thing is, the way the the way the academic job market works is, you know, you, you go on the job market, 
And the idea is that, you know, you're going like a year before you would actually get a job. And no one actually has their dissertation completely done at that point. So right. really what you have when you go on the market is you you know, have a, maybe a few chapters done of the dissertation and preferably papers maybe out of the dissertation work that are being published or in various states of publication. So what you've got are standalone papers and maybe standalone chapters or something, and then just sort of an indication that you know what you're doing with the dissertation. That's right. what gets you the job. I, well, see, I would say another thing that's causing me quite a bit of problem in starting writing is that... Um, uh, <clears throat> I want, to, or I'm trying to be out on the market right this year, which is probably far sooner than I should have, considering I only got back from the field like a month and a half ago. So I have like maybe about one percent of the dissertation started at this point, and so that getting the whole writing sample by say October, quite a deadline to try to meet. Well, but see, but that's uh, what you do though: is you don't worry about writing the dissertation. You think, what's the first paper I could write out of this? Like the yeah. first standalone paper. Just need a chapter. That's you know? really what you just need. And like right, right. Still you, pressure, though. <laughs> it's still quite a, quite a yeah. deadline to get a chapter written. Because the fear is if you think in terms of like standalone papers, like I could write these two or three papers, that that's somehow not going to come together in, into a cohesive dissertation. Who cares? Like it's not like it's not like your committee is going to go, well, you know, this dissertation really reads like three or four papers that you just stitched together into a dissertation. We're not going to pass it yet. And yes, we know you already got a job um, because that's the way this you know, it's the dissertation right. itself is really not that important. It's a you very know. good point. Very you know, point at, to remember. At, at the ASA, I was like meeting some people and doing these like kind of informal um job interviews and one person actually kind of quizzed me on my dissertation which I wasn't really ready for in a I way. had the exact same experience <laughs> and it's um you know I think this is also worth saying is that like this is going to sound arrogant but like we, we know more about our topic than anybody else and in a way we're trying to frame our dissertation in a language that makes sense to other people and they will try to kind of critique it a little bit or push back on it and I think there's something to be said about figuring out like how what's the most strategic way of expressing what I did in my dissertation and then if they ask questions I mean you know your topic better than anybody else really like in a way um about your study not maybe the substantive area sure and I just remember just like this guy's quizzing me and I was getting all nervous and I was like well, he doesn't know anything about this really <laughs> and like you ha I think um I was just thinking like my dissertation is like I can really write about anything I want to and I'm I'm like writing about this particular topic given my experiences and it's kind of I don't know it's like kind of liberating a little bit to realize that this is your thing you know and you're putting your spin on it and you know it better than anybody else and I think when you see the dissertation as a way of proving yourself I mean all you're proving is that you can do a project um, it doesn't have to be a genius project, but the benefit of it is that you get to do your own thing in a way. And like, as this guy was quizzing me, I was just like, you know what? Like, um, actually you don't know what you're talking about. And I, I didn't say it that way, but like, this is really what my project was about, you know, and I'm just trying to explain it in this kind of contrived way because I thought it would make sense. And I have to re rethink, um, about what my contribution is, you know, um, and, take it from there but 
you know, you you went to Iraq, you, you know, experienced these things and you have many things to say about them. So I think it's also to remember, good to remember that, you know. Yeah. I, I the one yeah, just thinking about audience, you know. I mean, that's the thing that's always paralyzing for me is that like you were saying, you're trying to take this really complex topic that you can certainly if you can't you, you know, you could write a dissertation about. Um, but it's so intimidating to boil it down to a two sentence description. Yeah. And and it's also because who's that two sentences for? You know, um, is it for uh, just your parents, your spouse, your See, John, <laughs> your, I'm actually you know, of I'm actually of the exact exact opposite camp where like I've got a really good like thirty second long explanation of my okay. project. Yeah. But like it's the filling in that probably a bit more than that that they'll want before I can graduate. Yeah. Um, that is intimidating me at the moment. Yeah. The the bit of advice that I've heard, I think it was like Steven Pinker or someone who is a great writer, right? <laughs> um, he is. And his advice is when you're writing, imagine like a high a college mm. uh roommate. Like your co- you know, your best friend in college who wasn't in your major or whatever. But just imagine some smart person who you respect, who is really intelligent, but doesn't know every detail about everything that you're studying and write for them. And now, now in that case, now he's this, he's probably talking about writing like his, his books, which are public for public consumption, but that gets you 80% of the way is the thing. You know, if you think about it, if you approach it that way, uh, I think, that gets you 80% of the way, and then you can go back in and add the citations that you need to talk to whichever audience this paper goes to. Or you can add the, you know, nuances about your methods when that's necessary for that audience, you know. But if you can get that 80% done, like, that, and that's, that I, I keep hammering on this point, because, like, that's what gets me hung up, is, you know, oh, well, what's so-and-so going to say about this? What would someone who's who does this kind of work think about this? And like that's just paralyzing right anywho hey john i have to mention this before, and it's kind of random but um <laughs> we were jesse and i were at the um book exhibit at the asa and we were like charged with like you know uh staffing the booth as uh, potential graduate students come in uh-huh. and i guess you know that you're like featured as like oh, the mascot geez. quite of the- prominently <laughs> I know. And, I can't believe they. Did. It's been that way for like four or five. It was that way a couple of years ago too. Oh, Wait, as the mascot gotta, for what? It's like it's it. a it's a picture yeah, of the yeah. Twin Cities, and then it's like John imposed on I top know. of the Twin Cities. And it's not a very good picture of me either. It's I, just, I think I think it's all right. But there was a woman who was thinking about applying to graduate school, and she was said something to the effect about how we have like a large school, and she's just like, "You guys are giants," and I thought she meant like <laughs> you're a giant. You know? <laughs> John will destroy the Twin Cities. <laughs> that is actually uh, actual the Department size. of Giants. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I did. Uh, though to be fair, it came in handy that you were on the sign because we were talking to a young woman who was interested in possibly coming to Minnesota, but didn't exactly know what she wanted to do. And she said, like, you know, she was nervous that if she came in with one idea, that it would be like very difficult to change it to something else. And I was like, actually, it's quite easy. This guy right here changed his after he already started his dissertation, and and he's large. Yeah. And <laughs> so, he so for those listening giant. at home, it's a picture of the Twin Cities with images of several grad students, like superimposed or something. Oh, oh, it's me and well, Chica, you and right? Chica. Yep. Yeah. 
And we're like, it may, yeah, it's there. We are, and, and they're they're quite large over the Twin Cities. Mm-hmm. What you need to know, listeners, they it, it does appear as if they are a male and female like tag team Godzilla sent to <laughs> the University of Minnesota and the Greater Twin Cities area. That's funny. Glad anyway. to help, though. Glad to help. Yeah, but yeah, it was great. It was a very handy example. Um, wait, what was the other thing we were going to talk about? I feel like we had another Chris, subject. Chris was going to talk about TV if he's still there. Oh, yeah. I'm still here. Okay, good. Uh, he's talking about those. I couldn't tell if you were being quiet because you were being quiet or if you were having technical problems. No, I just muted my mic. It sounds, sounds okay better. now, yeah. yeah. Whatever was causing that is gone. My girlfriend was using a hairdryer. So. <laughs> well, that'll, <laughs> that'll do it. <laughs> yeah. So, Chris, you... Uh, Posted something in our ideas folder, very angrily denouncing something about television. John, you you said it much better. What was he angrily denouncing? I didn't say it much better. I read what he wrote. Or you actually read what he wrote. Okay. The That's... claim, the claim that Chris is making that you can defend here is that looking to TV for improved attitudes towards difference, be it race, class, gender, and sexuality, is a fool's game. Do you hear me? A fool's game. Oh, Chris but you Pappas. must know that. Do you hear me? A, a fool's game. All caps. Yeah, I was I was trying to communicate. Did that not come across? Uh, see, I always think of all caps as shouting. Yeah, but, well, yeah. my kid's in bed, so I don't want to shout. <laughs> no, that's fair. Yours was a much more... Shouting rather than slowly enunciating. <laughs> Do you hear me? <laughs> all the fool's fun. game. Is exactly. that better? That's a much better reading. Okay, all right. Okay. So um, defend this preposterous claim, Chris. Do people actually think that um, yes. if you can have a more diverse representation of people on TV that it will heal our great gods. Oh, yeah. Gods. People okay. definitely believe that. This okay. is still, really? I think, a foundational media strategy oh, for yeah. a lot of organizations based around those concerns, despite what I think is a, a mountain of evidence that they should know better. And even if it's not important to these various organizations and movements, it's still an issue that I think is fairly common in, in the public in the American consciousness, mm-hmm. if you if you will, that that this is something that has that 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 what well, we see well, in terms a, of diversity on TV will affect something about diversity in real life. I actually just saw like on television some like one of those news magazine shows or something. I didn't actually watch it. I saw the commercial for it, but they were doing like some special about because there's that out gay character on Glee, and uh, they're doing like some special about like all oh, the kids' lives. This has changed to have like a positive role model on television, right, you know. Right. And like now that there's an out gay kid on Glee, like it will end bullying forever, you know. But or not, MTV bad, is about though. to start a reality show with a with an overweight woman as the star, and this right. is apparently some huge, big deal, fantastic thing. But I mean, it's I actually I don't get the point because like. Do you think these people actually think it's going to make massive change or do they think it's just important to highlight diversity because not highlighting diversity is a bad thing? Like, do you no, know what I, I'm saying? Like, I think – I mean I think a fair amount of people legitimately think it will bring about change just to have like yeah. people it's, who haven't been represented on television now on television. Especially these days around the issue of sexuality. And I think if you go back – 10 years, it's a different group that's doing the same strategy. Well, it's but kind despite of like, it never actually working, everyone keeps going for it. But I mean, sexuality is the one that's been bouncing around my head recently. Yeah, I guess I don't understand the point. Sorry, I'll let Jesse finish. 
I was just going to compare it to the fact that, like, you know, it's similar to, like, Obama's election. I feel like there were a significant amount of people who thought this would, like, made a significant difference in, like, the r- racial relations in our country, right? Um, which I would I guess you're saying. It's, it's a largely symbolic event yes. that, that carries with it all the weight of the history of these kind of discussions. But, yeah, to, to anyone who who kind of think, knows what's up it's obviously not going to do that much i think one can say though that it's important to highlight diversity in movie and still hold the position that it might not change a lot of things but it is important to i do think it because, that begs a, a far more detailed question but continue well because i mean to not highlight diversity and just have kind of continually showing movies and shows where it's just a very you know white upper middle class group of characters i mean i think that would not be a good social that would not be a social good to encourage and i would like to see more diversity in tv but i'm not necessarily saying it's a it's going to eradicate you know um the inequalities and injustices that are going on in the real world and i don't think it's going to obscure that these things need to be done i mean if people want to make the argument that it's obscuring i guess i'm willing to listen to that but i just i, definitely I don't think it obscures a little bit <clears throat> Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off by that. No, I, I just like <laughs> wasn't like the whole like Brown versus the Board of Education. I know we're gonna like misquote the time again or the year. <laughs> what year was that? <laughs> I believe it was eighty-seven, eighty-five, or eighty-six. <laughs> but didn't they like use the whole like black doll, white doll thing when they went to little girls and asked them to choose which doll they found prettier? And like that was one of the things they used as evidence that like right, but I would you know, separate that more and sixty years life. later. The data for those black doll, white doll experiments is still pretty much the same. You mean well, 85 gonna, years later? Sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think that using the black doll, white doll study actually kind of proves the point I think both Chris and I are making, or at least I'm trying to make, is that like the black doll is representation, right? Of They, mm-hmm. they diversified the line of dolls. But clearly that didn't make a difference because people still, like all the children, preferred the white doll, right? So that's kind of my point. Like the representation doesn't... Well, I don't know. I don't think symbolic and material things can be disconnected like that. I don't think – I agree that if you're just pursuing – That's part of the problem. If you're just pursuing a symbolic movement then and not addressing the material inequalities, that would be problematic. But I do think you have to address the symbolic issues at the same time, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean but- – well, I don't think anybody's arguing it's a bad thing to have more diversity out there. I, I, just want I thought this was – I, I, I think that's what Chris is – it can be a bad thing. I'm not saying it's always a bad thing, but it, there seems to be a – I don't want to call it a cycle, but a, a process that happens whenever – I hate to use the term the media, but w- let's take television as an example. Whenever television tries to deal with this kind of diversity, the race, class, gender, sexuality, big four that we deal with more often than not, um, and it seems to be – not only driven by political and ideological concerns, but also issues of funding, of course, and how the product is actually made. And it's out of step with time. Like, it's out of step with the real world. How do you mean? The, the classic example here, I think, because of the way racial discourse about race and racism in America has went, is about African Americans on TV. Okay. So if, if you go back far enough, you can see the first time in which African-Americans appear on television. And these days, if, if people look back to those representations, they find them horribly stereotypical and racist, right? Yes, sure. <laughs> and then 
And but, we agree that those, those should be changed. Yeah, but if you go back to when that happened, you'll find a decent amount of people saying, this is a great thing. Finally, we're showing more diversity in different terms they would have used, but finally we're showing more diversity on television. Right, right. So, and, and then TV tries to kind of keep pace with not being racist, not being too left-wing about it, and trying to find this sweet spot that doesn't actually exist. And the representation is always off. And that's part of the problem. They're always treating the subject of, in this case, racial diversity as this symbolic and political battlefield on which they have to take a position. And but they, TV is just a symbolic medium. I mean, it, there is nothing else that can do besides, right, you know. I, sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm go ahead. People off. Well, I was going to say, I kind of think like with, with Chris's thing is that or at least what I took away from it was that a lot of times when they start to diversify characters into a place they never had, like say they're currently doing um, with a lot more like gay or lesbian characters on TV, um, it's always about like that issue too. Like we've yet yeah, to have any like people that can only be gay and lesbian character. characters. Exactly, right? So like every storyline involving the out gay kid on Glee is about like his gayness. Like there is – Right. I mean, I quit Precisely. watching it a long time ago, but there was never, at least until that point, there was never a story about him that wasn't about like how he's gay. And like, I've never watched Glee, but that's the process. First, they appear as these horrible stereotypes. Then, because people say that that's racist, the TV industry freaks out and puts this ultra romanticized version of that group on TV, where you can look at it and say, well, at least they're not being portrayed as criminals or perverts or whatever it is but the, the the portrayal is so romanticized that you can't help but think they're only portraying it this way because they don't want to make them criminals and perverts like you you can't get away from the stereotype and the issue you can't just tell the story it's always about this you know what it's supposed to mean that was very inarticulate but yeah and i, yeah, think, I think i said it way better i think i think the thing is you in in the context of sort of the in the culture war context i think what happens is you have two reactions we so far we've only been talking about um kind of the liberals rejoicing at greater diversity but then at the same time you have the whole uh sort of white backlash Mm -hmm. like why are all these people not like me taking over my television shows kind of reaction and they see that and to them it it does signify, you know, their society is changing. You know, this isn't their country anymore and all those things. And they read all that stuff into what's happening on TV. Yeah. And so, I mean, I don't, but I don't, I mean, I don't know where that, I mean, I guess the point is. That's why it's a really bad strategy for all these different groups to use because you can't control how people are going to read the storyline, the character, whatever it is. People um, thought it was great that I guess I just don't understand were on TV until all those African Americans were portrayed as criminals and drug dealers and so on and so forth until all that was left was daytime TV and cops. Uh, that's why people made such a big deal out of the Cosby Show, and the Cosby Show is brilliant in its own right and brilliant as an Afrocentric piece of piece of art as an Afrocentric TV show. But there was a, a famous study done where it showed that a lot of viewers looked at the Cosby Show and read a ton of um, a ton into it that supported their own racism against African Americans. Have you guys? I, have you guys? Uh, the movie, the movie, The Help. Have any uh, of you seen? I saw or, the commercial for it. I mean, that looks yeah. 
bad. I haven't <laughs> I mean, seen it. I haven't I've seen heard it, but I've controversy, read... but I haven't seen anything. Okay, so we shouldn't probably talk about it then, because none of us. I was hoping one of the three of you had actually. I've just seen read it? some <laughs> of the reactions to it and thought it would be interesting to bring up. A thing not. that got me it thinking about be. this recently was: uh, Do you guys read Andrew Sullivan's The Dish? Uh, I know sometimes is, yeah. you can't read everything because the dude he must he blogs <laughs> more than I talk. It's crazy. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I'm completely unfamiliar with it, and some of our listeners may be. So Andrew, so Andrew Sullivan is a, a blogger uh, slash. He's got a PhD, but he he doesn't market himself as an academic. Uh, he's a conservative, but he's also gay, and uh, okay. he's not much of a conservative anymore. If, kind of if, a libertarian, right? On the libertarian side, he he's an old school conservative, like you know Burke and all of that. Um, you can find his column on the Daily Beast. He had one recently about an interview that J.J. Abrams, who's directing, you know him from a bunch of stuff. He's directing the yeah. sequel to the new Star Trek reboot. Ah, uh, yeah. And the, I guess he did an interview with a website called After Elton, which is a gay website. Mm-hmm. It's weird to say that as terminology, but there you go. Um, who I'm not familiar with them, but they were basically asking him why there were no gay characters in Star Trek, despite the fact that the franchise in all its various forms has dealt with the issues, but none of the main characters are gay. And they were really wanted a gay kiss in the sequel. Okay. okay. From, from Spock? Is, is Spock gay? Uh, I don't know if they had a particular pair <laughs> chosen or anything like that but uh, i mean if they were gonna pick one I mean, yeah. on, Spock. <laughs> but i i did see the reboot and he's in a relationship with uhura so yeah yeah so oh. that's kind of sh- in an interracial relationship so you know there's diversity so i guess i'll just ask it as a question do you think as a show of he's a vulcan of course it's interracial <laughs> well yeah i, I think captain that- kirk and uhura did the first interracial kiss in, in TV, on television, yeah. oh, and, if, and yeah. if people actually think that was important, then yeah, that that's pretty stupid. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Before that, I think a lot of people were racist. After that, not so much. I mean, he also kissed like Martians and you know space aliens and like. <laughs> actually, let's edit that part out. <laughs> no, no, I'm leaving that in. African American woman. So, yeah. I'm just saying that like that show. I mean, never mind. They also had a Russian uh, navigator during a time of the Cold War. And yeah, because in that show, it was a way to play around with all these ideas. The Klingons were the USSR. Um, all the other people were representative of Cold War powers. And, and science fiction is always about problems in the world today seen right. in a few contexts. So it's a great place to look for stuff like this. See, my and problem with like – go ahead. Sorry, I keep cutting you off. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, my problem with like all this like – media study stuff is that i think it just gives way too much like attention to what tv executives think about the sensitivities of the world like tv executives just want to make money and i just feel like they're just playing to constituents and so like analyzing like i i know a lot of cultural studies people do like buffy the vampire and a depiction of vampires and race and you know this that was 90s cultural studies all about buffy the vampire slayer is being rekindled for twilight oh god i mean i just think that like talk about it this is what (laughs) never mind i'm gonna just keep quiet here but i always just think that (laughs) there's just a little bit of a Misfocus of attention. I'll just that's say that. true. I mean, for a long time, 
academics have been saying you can't just focus on the people making the stuff. You have to focus on the audience and what the audience does with it. <sighs> then there's a, another – Or actual inequality. Like what the audience does with it, but also that there's a lot of tension going on with the people making it. So it's not just people looking for profit. There are people who legitimately want to make art, however – whatever their definition of that might be. And that will run up against the, the organizational or economic procedures as well. So making too many assumptions about it always gets you into trouble. I went to a conference once where um, I was following an ex-girlfriend, and it was all about vampires and race and just saw constant – the conference was? Yeah. And uh, it was just one panel after the other of showing, like, 80s films. And if you really look at it, like, oh, you know, uh, black vampires are always attacking white women in a particular way. And uh, black women are always killed in a particular way in the vampire movies, you know. And I'm, okay, that's a good pattern to, um, you know, interrogate. But, like, these are TV – like, cheesy TV executives who wrote these series, you know. So there's common tropes that they use, you know. Um, TV executives right. don't write series. Yes, fair enough. But they they choose what goes on to TV, and, yeah. and they also Not choose. Always. I mean, but to be fair, it pretty does. much are writing to what the executives want. I mean, I'm sorry, I think that's how the TV world works. I don't think it's. But writers. that's an empirical question. I will say though, in defense of that kind of stuff, I mean, it, it it does say something that at least clearly there's some group of people who thinks that their best route to money is continually producing things in which. Black vampires tie quite women in a certain way, or something. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's clearly a somewhat. I mean, it's a somewhat important point that obviously some sort of you know, however powerful segment sees that as a legitimate path to money making, right? Like, I know, and they do like all sorts something. of Freudian. I just imagine analysis. this one executive in a corner office. Just that's his one thing is the way black vampires attack. You want to make a vampire <laughs> no, thing? You're go doing see it wrong. <laughs> I just, I guess, what I'm trying to say is, like, I'm not surprised that people in Hollywood have prob- problematic ways of thinking about race and class and gender, and that sometimes sure. they they try to make these movies that are really cutting edge and they're not that well thought out. Like, I accept that 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 happens, but why do we need to pay so much attention to it? Like, is that really? what's changing society i understand tv and movies important and inspires people but i I just think it's too much attention being spent on i was i guess what i was trying to argue is that i mean in some ways that stuff is reflecting society though right so by studying that you know we can understand sort of what's going on you know what i mean and that's where the people who produce the stuff are at this crossroads because they know they have the power to reflect society and they know that at one point, that's really good and profitable, and at another point, that gets them in trouble. But we also uh, – there's too much information about this kind of stuff now that they, they are starting to think we have kind of predictive powers or we, we have the power to change how people think about this. So they're starting to put that in. And for the groups looking to that as a strategy to better the – for whatever reason, it's – I believe that the, the end outcome of all these movements based on, on difference – is to be seen simply as human beings, as people, right? And to not have the, that element of the difference always be the, the master signifier. Is that a fair thing to say? I think so. In these TV shows, they're stuck in different ways of portraying that element of difference as the master signifier, and thus preventing presentations of these people as humanity. And yeah. that's where the problem is always going to be. 
whether you're trying to romanticize it to, to do something positive or whether you've done it in, in a negative way, stop trying to do it because <laughs> that's what's going to But that you have to see. do it. I mean, that's what TV is, though. It's just trying to appease the constituents. I mean, I, you can't not try to do it. You have to always be moving ahead the conversation in their minds, and it's always going to be problematic, and there's always going to be a contrived way of constructing race and class and gender, or it's going to be saying something that's seen as racist five years from now. But, I mean, it's like that movie Crash that came out. You know, I, I think it was a decent movie. I don't think it's oh. a bad thing. But people say, well, dude, you don't get it. Like, that was such a problematic and cheesy way of talking about difference. But it was like that and Buffy the Vampire that came out that summer like of the of what was available uh i think it did a decent job about raising these issues buffy was so much better <laughs> yeah buffy's clearly better i don't think they came out at the same time either, <laughs> not even close. like a decade apart um, but the, yeah the, the, the thing is though chris about you know when you have what's the solution what's the way out of that trap right the the, the you know your, your your thing where a character on a show is either signifying you know the master signifier of you know the, a token character mm. or they're so obviously bending over backwards to make them the opposite of that that it's obvious anyway what the only way out of that trap is to like flood the culture with diversity so that people don't pick up on that anymore right so that no, you can the only way out that. of that trap is just to write them like any other normal human being character, yeah, I, I, right? think, I, I think mean, that's, that's a lot harder than you think it is. I though. think both of these things need to happen. On the one hand, it'd be much easier to, to write these characters if you weren't saddled with the fact that you were the only gay character on the air or one of five African-American yeah. characters on the air or the only Latin, Latin American show on the air. That's going to be a problem, and that's what's led to a lot of the yeah. sort of you know people use the term ghettoized networks, like what UPN used to be before they changed their name, and so on and so forth. Um, there's, you know, and then there's ways to yeah. It, once you reach that point, you can just tell stories. Maybe it won't matter. Yeah, I just you know I, there is evidence that says that the more people see um, and interact with. Uh, with uh, GLBT people, the more they have positive attitudes towards them, the more they're supportive of, of equal rights. And I think that's why those groups have really jumped on this media strategy. But most of that data is for actually knowing people and dealing with yeah, them. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. seeing some cheesy caricature of them on TV probably does not yeah. necessarily increase your good feelings. But I mean, but I mean you, you have to acknowledge rather than just laughing at the idea that there is kind of a plausibility in, in all of this stuff where, you know, when you're watching TV, why is it compelling to you? Why do you keep watching? Because you associate with, you affiliate, you know, you, you, you empathize with the characters, you get into the story, you get into their lives and what happens to them and you care about them. You know, sure. I mean, it's so. I mean, it's not like it's a crazy stretch to say that. And if oh, the I don't think we were are, like laughing at the idea. I think we were just yeah. And I'd be happy to see. I mean, I I actively seek out shows that deal with race because it's what I study. Um, if there there are racial elements to the story, but that would be integrated with other things about this person, not just oh, they're either a, yeah. say a black character that acts stereotypical 
towards a particular vision of what black masculinity or femininity is supposed to be, or they're explicitly not that, but rubbing our face in the fact that they're not that yeah. to reinforce the earlier stereotype. Yeah. But same see, thing I, with I mean, I, difference. Yeah. Um, I just think that, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, a writer. We were just talking about, about <laughs> writing. I not, I can't imagine, you know, like I'm not a sitcom writer or whatever. If I were, I can imagine that it would be ex- incredibly hard to walk this fine line though. I mean, I'm just, it's not as simple as, oh, TV just has this stupid attitude towards portraying diversity because just put yourself in that situation and imagine, you know, you have a black character, you have a gay character, and how do you write them so that you, you're not constantly, so that you're not ignoring their race or ignoring their sexuality? But then at the other hand, you're not going out of your way to ignore it. It's actually really hard to do, I'm sure. imagining. I mean, and there's a chance I that I don't know that it is. That. I don't know that I necessarily buy that it's that hard to do. I mean, like, so write how, a TV show, Jesse. Do it. Well, I would if somebody would buy it. But what I'm saying is, like, I mean, you know, you don't say like, oh, it's got to be hard to write a white male character and not deal with their whiteness and maleness. Like, no. I mean, they well, just get to have like human stories. You know, um, but like you. But can. if you do that, people will say you're not treating race seriously. You're just making this character black, and you're not really addressing what it's like to be a. Will black they character. or won't they? My yeah, solution to this is question. to let the audience speak for themselves, and I know TV executives won't want to do that because it involves a fair amount of risk, both financially and in terms of public relations. But that should be the way that I think we do this. It's like there was that cartoon where they made that princess black. Um, this Disney cartoon and people got all upset because they're like, well, they portray this unrealistic portrayal of this black princess and ignore the fact that, you know, you know, the slavery legacy of, you know, princesses and so forth. And I was like, whoa. I heard about uh, Captain America. I haven't seen it, but I hear that it imagines a 1940s that was never segregated. It's just (laughs) everyone's Uh, interacting with each other. Did you know Spider-Man's black now? The new Peter Parker's black. No way, really. In in one Only of the in, a, in, one, actually, in one in one reality, or he's actually one, biracial, I believe. And he's not Peter Parker. They killed off Peter. Yeah, Parker. that's what I meant. Well, he's the new Peter Parker. You know, like. But he's modeled after. Oh, Danny so he's got it. I, like. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't mean he was Peter Parker. I mean, he's the new. He's the new Spider Man. Yeah, he's the new Spider Man. Distinct the, from Peter Parker, sir. You know, he's the new. You know what I meant. I mean, it would be a coincidence if he was also named Peter Parker, but just <laughs> quite. Saying. Um, yeah, but again, though, actually I must say, uh, like Chris was talking about with the reaction thing, because there was some sort of Tumblr I was reading just of people's like racist Facebook posts about spider, like the new Spider-Man. And like, there are a lot of people who are really upset and like, to the point where like, I mean, I can't imagine caring that much about any like comic book character, but like, man, people took it as quite a personal affront that <laughs> Spider-Man was no longer white. And, uh, I mean, I have no it's, idea where that comes from, but it kind of speaks to Chris's point about the, the backlash. Yeah. It's, and that, I heard it's people that backlash thing. thing. It's some like, we're angry for very racist reasons, but some people were angry because the portrayal was as they read it, such an obvious attempt to be politically correct or something similar to that that it shouldn't be taken seriously as as an example of trying to really talk to beyond whiteness. That's true. So there, there's I, I would always be, be these discussions, but the discussions are productive. Yeah. Yeah. I would be interested to see. I mean, it, the cynic in me would be interested to see, like, what percentage of their writing staff 
for Spider-Man is people of color. I mean, my my guess is it's pretty white dude dominated industry. But I don't know. I think there's only three women left writing superhero comics as well. Yeah, oh man, I where have they this, gone? Uh, I don't know. I, I saw some headline recently that there was a big boom in in uh, female writers recently in comics, and then it it fizzled out. I don't know. Another issue um, or another on. example I, that we were, oh go ahead Jesse. No, th- this is gonna take us off a winding trail. It's gonna be a fun trail, but not relevant. Go ahead. Well, one second. Um, people are talking a lot about the show Modern Family. Have you any of you mm, seen it? Yeah, oh, I heard it was good. It, it actually is a pretty good show. There's, I mean, it's, it's entertaining, interesting decent, stuff to but talk about there. again, their their portrayal of homosexuality is is an encapsulation of the argument that I've been trying to make. They have one character, right? Yeah. One gay character who's um for lack of a better term, flamboyant, if that's fair. Quite and another one who tries to be... Who played uh, football. Who tries to be completely Actually, the flamboyant straight. one played Oh, football. yeah, the flamboyant yeah. one played football. But that's a good example, actually. There's a straight yeah. actor playing the flamboyant gay one yeah. and a gay yeah. actor playing... And so on and so forth. And they only make the other one engage in what is supposed to be really gay when it suits the joke, essentially. Yeah. But they're, they're constantly keeping this this polarization active as the way to drive the comedy and... Personally, yeah. I think it's kind of dumb, but a lot of people seem to like it. But again, that it gets show, you. Yeah, the, the, there's also the way, the, the treatment of um, Al Bundy's wife. Uh, yeah. Being a, Colombian. Uh-huh. Yeah, whatever his name is on the show, he's Al Bundy forever. Um, oh, right. Okay, I thought you were actually referencing Mary Children. <laughs> no, like, no, no, no. The character, what's Columbia. his name? Yeah, Al yeah. Bundy. O'Neal? Yeah, Ed O'Neill. Yeah, Ed O'Neill. That's his, his name. I don't know the Yeah, the character's name. I can't remember right now. I haven't watched the show in a while, but but there's always, epi- you know, there there are a lot of um, sort of jokes at the expense of uh, her being Colombian, right? Yeah. That, that I think it's one of those things that you know, like a mostly white audience watches and laughs and thinks it's okay because oh well, obviously they're they're like you know a mostly white suburban audience, I should say. Yeah, um, and and they think it's like funny and clever and laughing at race and. Sometimes it's actually just pretty tasteless and bad, That's true. actually. Sometimes, yeah. Because, yeah. um, again, Latin Americans have not gone through this process yet. They're at the infancy of this. There have been so few examples of media directed at that group that's, that's mainstream that eventually we're going to see this, this process where they're going to start out with these horribly stereotypical portrayals that are eventually going to embarrass people. And then we'll get a different version of it, and so on and so forth. Hmm. And it's and the circle of life continues. I mean, I can't tell if I'm angry at it or if it's just a circle that I've observed happening at it. I I think. Well, I, that's I, the thing. I just getting angry about it. I don't. That doesn't make sense to me, actually. I mean, it just seems like a maturity thing. Like you know, TV shows get more mature. Not your maturity thing, but like, <laughs> you're like that's a maturity thing, Chris. Chris you're an immature you stop guy. You like a baby. <laughs> yeah, you have some anger issues too with Buffy and the Vampire. You gotta just—I've uh, broken four go. TVs. I have a colleague who gave me this book that he put together. Colleague, oh, God, to just uh, maybe edit that out. I have a friend who wrote uh, a collection of essays or <laughs> gathered a collection of essays on uh, Star Trek, and it was like so just a to be cor- clear. This person is not a colleague of yours. Just a friend. yeah, yeah, a friend. I don't know. Colleague sounds like I'm trying to be too academicy. I think uh, you know when you know uh, you're an academic. The one thing that always cracks me up, like where did you go to your undergraduate? Uh, where did you get your undergraduate education? Right, you mm-hmm. know you're an academic if you hear someone talk about their undergraduate work. 
yeah. <laughs> Nobody yeah. alive calls it that. Nobody. But that's anywhere. not a cultural thing. That's just because we have undergraduate yeah. work. My colleagues, when I was doing my undergraduate work. <laughs> but, you know, colleagues, I don't know. That just sounds like, you know, you're trying to sound academic yeah, it, it just sounded funny. That's all, dude. So, just, um, just needling you a little bit. <laughs> so you wrote this or co- uh, you know gathered this collection of essays on Star Trek and it's all this kind of postmodern <laughs> critiques of like the Borg and what they symbolize mm-hmm. and like the prime directive and its way of infiltrating other cultures and pretending to be multiculturalist but really imposing the will of the prime directive and science over nature debates and I I, I get that this is just you know the show was trying to cross boundaries and it, it asks interesting questions and then the critiques are part of a conversation, but it is just Star Trek. You know I mean? Like at the end of the day, like it was some guy who thought up of the Borg and I'm not surprised that, you know, his articulation of difference and sameness is, you know, in, incarnate of a, you know, stupid alien that goes around assimilating other cultures. I mean, I, there's an interesting idea there, but it's just, you know, not the most mature way of thinking about the, you know, tensions of a multicultural well, society. Yeah, and I was going to say, they definitely weren't writing the show at that level. Like, yeah. that guy was not like, think of the implications, though. If the Borg go to the culture and do this, it will totally Oh, they're totally writing it about that at that level. Yeah, I actually am with They're Chris on that totally one. writing it at that level. Uh, maybe. These Science are- fiction is and fantasy are worlds unto themselves where they really think they're uh, they don't really think they're playing around with real life, but they think what they're working with is is the ideas and behaviors that are very real. Oh no, I mean I don't doubt that they're doing that. Like that's I mean, you know, I'm a I like I like the horror movies uh, for a lot of the same reasons. You know, they're usually usually some sort of commentary on our nature and that kind of et cetera, et cetera. I don't. I mean, I don't doubt that they're doing that, but like, I doubt that they're thinking about whatever abstract postmodern theorist is being invoked here. You know? Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Really? Uh, well, yeah. then I, I guess I stand corrected. <laughs> I've I've I mean, again, there's too much information about this, and you, if you can find people who work in the industry blogging about it or, or talking about it. They'll be quite honest about the kind of things they're trying to do. And a lot of them, especially on sexuality, are based on these sort of activist positions. Sure. Where it's basically the professionalization of slash fiction. Um, That makes me angry. (laughs) (laughs) It should. Arturo, you don't do a very convincing Oh, there was also... um, (laughs) So there was the Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Twilight stuff, and then there was... um, there Are they really Madonna writing cultural about Twilight? Stu- I've seen it. There's Madonna cultural studies in the 80s into the 90s. Right. And now it's all Lady Gaga cultural studies. Oh, yeah, of course. Which is really embarrassing. There was a book about The Simpsons, too, for a while, wasn't there? Like, there, a- there was a book, The Simpsons and Philosophy. I have that yeah. one. There's a whole series but that of one, But the thing about that one is that one's clearly much more of a, like, I don't think the authors are taking it very seriously. Like the essays are just kind of like, you know, I remember there was one that was like this essay. This was like Bart can be considered the Ubermensch or whatever that Nietzsche talks about, you know, or that probably wasn't the term used, Uber something, uh, you know. And I mean, they were just a lot more like fun. I don't think they were. That was one of the, f- you know, the Simpsons, analyzing. Was that like one of the first in that series? You know, now there's like a whole shelf full of books that are it would not surprise me if it was the first in that series because it it's pretty old now it's more than a decade old i know that much yeah 
so yes. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just thinking about the philosophy of The Simpsons. Right. Reflecting on The Simpsons. I hope we get some angry rants from the cultural studies people who... No, only... <laughs> who only... you just... Who you just said do nothing. (laughs) We've already established only anthropologists listen to this. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess that's their field work, right? Like just watching TV and taking notes. There's a a great book that informs a lot of my thinking about the subject that I'd like to plug. And that's uh, Freaks Talk. Yeah, I've got something you should read. A colleague recommended it. It's called Freaks Talk Back (laughs) by Joshua Gamson. Uh, uh, Freaks Talk Back, Sexual Nonconformity in TV Trash Talk Shows. Something like that. Um, and it's about those like Jerry Springer and, and Ricky Lake and all those kind of things. Um, and it's a great theoretically informed study of how the issue of sexuality is portrayed. And, and to go back to your earlier point, Arturo, that there's no real danger in this. His point is that there explicitly is a real danger to it. Because you can look to these shows and you can see that in the, in the contemporary age, there's tons of diversity being presented. Those daytime mm-hmm. trashy talk shows are where you're going to see not only the more conventional aspects of, of same-sex behavior, but you'll see all sorts of various fetishes and trans issues and you know whatever it is. Um, so everything from con- <laughs> conventional sexual dysfunction to very <laughs> rare sexual dysfunction um, in terms of like you know bad relationships and everything uh, among straight people. So he says, on the one hand. I don't see how that's bad. On the one hand, people can see how diverse all of this stuff is. On Mm -hmm. the other hand, if you watch the TV audience's reaction to this, they just destroy those people. First of all, the producers play a ton of games with how these people are portrayed to make them seem positive or negative. So there's, you're not always getting an authentic representation of what the issue is or what the people are like. But then the audience, through their reactions, kind of enforces this heteronormative culture on it. I, I guess where, when you say oh, authentic. Oh, you're gay? That's gross. And everyone shouts in support. Oh, you're doing this weird sexual fetish? You're weird. There must be something wrong with you. And everyone applauds in support. Only recently on those shows have people been accepting of same-sex relationships. But all the rest of the stuff, not really. So you still get this... Yeah, I this think- ...support for the unstated, oppressive normal that is the problem to begin with. I do remember actually now that you mention it, like watching Jerry Springer when I was like 13 or whatever age you are when you think Jerry Springer's entertaining. And uh, yeah, very often the reveal was that like one partner in a relationship was secretly having a gay affair and that was always like the, what clearly made them a bad person, right? That they were having like this secret gay affair. And you're right, there was very much that kind of like, and then yes, and I very much just remember it because the audience would always, the first thing somebody would say is that like you know it's it's more wrong because it's gay or something like that right and there's very yeah. much a yeah yeah direct policing of that god hmm. we really need that cricket sound clip just like that would make <laughs> so awesome <laughs> or a sound clip that creates agreement Intellectual nothing, triumph. Nothing wrong with some some space to think every once in a while, you know. Oh, there's yeah. nothing wrong with that, but it, it, there's nothing <laughs> wrong with adding a sweet cricket sound effect for humor. Could, would that interrupt your your deep thought, though? Uh, I, I would. It, lo- it would be kind of like the Jeopardy music, you know. It'd be like <laughs> be that space to think. I actually wrote. Um, John, that's probably copyrighted. 
Uh, I wrote about three or four pages on that Star Trek post that Andrew Sullivan posted. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, yeah? I was so into the issue, yeah. You need a blog. Can, can we link to this? It's not posted anywhere. Uh, we'll post it on ours, dude. I might, I might. I want to read what you have to say. I don't know if it makes sense, but I never do, oh. so it'll be good to get other people's thoughts on it. Uh, see, it's that whole writing thing. We come full circle again. Wow. Way to bring it home. Wow. We're all about circles this episode. We are, we're very cycle of life today. I, I think we've made like three references to the circle of life. So I think, Yeah, um, the, the pig and the uh, <laughs> buffet eating thing. Yep. I guess what we're trying to say is that everything in life is like a circle. And everything. You, know, you learn. <laughs> or everything in life actually becomes shit, which is... <laughs> Well, I see somebody's feeling cynical today. Yeah, just today. Yeah. So, Chris, did you get the joke about the Brown versus the Board education date? I was kind of clueless and confused. Okay. I, I'd oh, forgotten you. I mean, that was our first episode ever, so it, it might goes need back some to explanation. The first episode when I gave a, a long, long uh, pro segregation rant uh, <laughs> that really, apparently, a lot of listeners thought was out of line. Now, Jesse, before we get <laughs> what actually happened, you said the date like you said it was like six years. He said sixty four, I think. Yeah, I believe yeah. I said sixty four when it actually happened yeah. in fifty eight. No, now I'm saying those numbers. I don't know that those numbers are correct. Oh God, that why didn't I fifty four? 54. Okay, I definitely said sometime in the 60s, but and see, it happened in 54. But my point was I was just throwing like a random number at it because I knew it was of that era, right? Um, it's not my expertise, and it was – I'm not even certain the point I was making. But so anyway, it – Someone took offense to it. <laughs> yeah, which is fair enough. I certainly didn't mean to be belittling it. I'm just not very good with my historical dates. Um, and so anyway, so then it became a running joke amongst ourselves – that uh, I apparently have no idea when things have happened, um, which is why we all started laughing when I was it I was it I referenced yeah it? I don't no, know I, I think I referenced it actually I'll have to I, listen I, back because we're how... talking about the black dolls white dolls and I said brown right and then I yes. think John you went into the 1986 reference and I was like oh yeah 1987 and yeah that could uh, that is weird. that is why Arturo's mention of Brown v Board of Education caused us to start laughing and making jokes about the year it took I place. see I see uh, good to clarify good to clarify but see here's the funny the thing about that though I mean it's actually uh, it the, that was the first the first episode and the the objection to getting the date wrong was like you gotta be careful doing these podcast things because you know you're just talking off the cuff you get something wrong and it's embarrassing and that could come back to bite you right yeah yeah right i i do hope that in life the fact that i once did not <laughs> was not able to recall the exact year brown v board of education happened uh, and if that decides the difference between something good and something bad happening <laughs> for me i have to wonder what decisions i made to get whatever situation that is i think it wasn't the specific this that specific example being all that huge of a deal as much as just being a I think example. in the context of our name, you know, of I think the previous name of the lazy sociologist throwing out uh, incorrect facts. I think that was. Oh, part you want to go back to that topic, do you? Well, I, I just thought maybe that. I missed, has to I do missed with that it. name. That was that was a great. Yeah, name. I thought that was a great name. You should. Yeah. We should have beeped that that out. <laughs> the original sociology. name. Yeah. <laughs>
We'll change it to that when we're all tenured. <laughs> I think that would be hilarious, dude. Yeah, would be quite hilarious. That's why I wanted to do it to begin with. So anyway, yes, uh, let it be known that every member of the Sociology Improv podcast fully supports the court's decision in Brown v. Board of Education. And I say that I was re- as straight-faced I, as possible. I cheered personally in 1986 when they passed it. <laughs> God damn it, John. Oh, John, I love you so much. Uh, All right. I was there. <laughs> I guess I get the more we talk about it, how somebody could find it offensive that we mentioned Brown v. Board of Education and all just start laughing. Um, (laughs) Because even though the joke has nothing to do with the content of what Brown v. Board of Education was, they don't understand that context. The more we talk about it, the more I see how maybe. And and, and really, nobody's listened to that first episode, you know, I think. Right. uh, I'm quite certain the only people who got that joke were the three of us. I think we Obviously, actually, but we talked about of, it in the second episode because we. Since one of the hosts of the show does not know the joke, <laughs> we don't yeah. know we can expect our listeners to know the joke. Yeah, exactly. I think that's fair. That's a good check, safety check, when one of us doesn't quite get but, it. You but know? now that, but now it's out in the open, so we can do it every week. So yes, every week right. we're gonna make. Welcome <laughs> to Sociology Improv, where Brown Bourses of Education happened whenever you wanted it. <laughs> I will say though, from now on. Whenever uh, this joke is made, there will be a link back to this very audio you are listening to right now. This is history you're hearing, people. Um, because, yes, now that we have explained it, we are free to joke about it. Now that you know the joke is solely related to my memory of historical events. History in the making on today, October 24th, 2017. A, and it goes back to the first episodes. It's a full circle again, you know, the circle of podcasts. So. Which, you know what, if you're listening right now, you really should go back from the beginning and start and, and you know, sequentially like a television series and you'll get just marathon such, a, it. such are, a richer experience. Are you going to do that, Jesse? Um, oh, def- definitely not, no. We're working on a way to have commentary tracks on the first episode. <laughs> so you can listen to us comment about our comments. The director's cut. Yeah. The director's cut features unbeeped mentions of famous sociologists. <laughs> which we also know about, even when we're not saying anything bad about them. Again, the voice is